Hello, I'm Brian Hubbard. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. And we are What Doctors Don't Tell You. And welcome again to another podcast and vlogcast. And you've caught us at a great moment because the latest issue has just hit the stores. The April issue. Uh, for you vlogcast viewers, Lynn's holding it up now. And um, Lynn, tell us a bit about what's in the issue. Well, we talked about it a bit last time. Mm-hmm. But for if you didn't hear about it... We're really excited because this issue is a real special one about depression. And it talks about the fact that there are millions and millions, something like 57 million prescriptions given out every year in the UK alone for antidepressants, but overwhelming evidence that they don't really work. But what does work is looking much more upstream. And that's what's so exciting about this issue, Brian, because we have a psychiatrist who talks about the fact that she believes that mental illness isn't really mental. And for all of her patients, um, anyone suffering from anything from like anxiety, depression, even schizophrenia, bipolar, she finds what's the bodily cause of what is usually an imbalance. And when she does that, she usually cures the so-called mental illness. Mm. So it's usually having too much of something, like some sort of um, toxicity, um, heavy metals and the like, or too little of something, certain nutrients like B vitamins mm. or and magnesium, for instance. So we have that. We also have a 10-step program for getting over depression naturally, which I think is going to be really interesting. And it's a problem that affects so many people, doesn't it, Lynn, in their lifetimes? Half of adults, I think, at some stage develop depression. Absolutely. So it's an absolute must-read, I would think. Absolutely. Mm. And, you know, speaking of epidemics, we also covered the opioid crisis Mm -hmm. and how to get yourself off of opioids naturally. And there's all kinds of solutions for healthy heart issues, um, for curing hay fever, Crohn's disease, and loads more. Great. It sounds like a cracking issue, Lynn. I think everyone should be reading. And if you have a problem finding it in your stores, it's available right across America and the UK. But if you do have a problem, why not subscribe? You can do so via our website, which is www.com. W-D-D-T-Y, which of course stands for What Doctors Don't Tell You, W-D-D-T-Y.com, and just follow the links, subscribe, we'll send it to your home every month. And Okay, so let's move on to this week's podcast. It's a cornucopia of extravaganza of health information, Lynn, this time round. Uh, we'll be touching on issues such as measles and the ongoing epidemic. Um, we'll be talking about HRT and some other nasty side effects they've discovered about it, about the pollutants in our home and what that's doing to all of us, and Lyme disease, which is uh, always an issue which I think has been seriously underreported, and we will talk a bit about that as well. So let's kick off. Um, Measles, always in the news these days, and and, um, what really started it was... An epidemic, or so-called, they say epidemic, an outbreak in 2015 in California, where suddenly 194 cases were reported, all around about the same time, and I think in the same area of California. And this really started the whole bandwagon rolling, which has now become the anti-vax 
clampdown, I suppose, for want of a better term. But now looking back at it, researchers have discovered that 30% of those original cases were never measles in the first place. They actually were reactions to the vaccine. So these were people who had been vaccinated and just had a natural reaction. I think what is surprising about the information is everyone's always known that the there is this sort of simple measles-like reaction to the vaccine and people have experienced a rash or a slight fever. Um, but they always thought it was around about 5% of people who are vaccinated would have this reaction. But this new research suggests it's far more common than that, where we're talking about 30% of cases. And, you know, thus far this year in America, there's been all of 350 cases of measles, which is supposedly an epidemic, which is causing all sorts of uh, restrictions, um, exemptions being removed in states, uh, voices being silenced on social media, you name it. So 350 cases sparked all of this, and yet a third of those, possibly a hundred of cases, probably aren't even measles at all, but merely reactions to the vaccine itself. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a real worry, this, because, you know, doctors are misdiagnosing these cases, which are reactions to the vaccine, as measles gets recorded as such, which gets added to this whole idea of an epidemic, which seems to be a complete non-starter. What do you think then? Well, I, this is extremely frustrating because, as you say, this has kicked off this huge reaction, even in the press. Mm. And the press are all attacking anti-vaxxers, as they call them, as though they're some sort of lunatic. I mean, even The Spectator recently, a magazine here in Britain, um, attacked a very noted person who runs an organization called The Informed Parent and attempts to do exactly that as some sort of crazy person. And this, and we know this person who is very sensible, very well informed herself. So this really irritates me because of the sloppy thinking that's gone on all the time about this. Mm. A, the assumption that vaccines must be safe and let's not even question it. And also with measles, what's really also irritating is this isn't the first time this has happened. You know, for decades, there have been random outbreaks of measles that occur primarily among the vaccinated. And these don't get noted. And suddenly everybody rushes to you know, revaccinate kids, et cetera. Mm. Nobody questions, well, how effective is this vaccine if all of these vaccinated children are going on to get measles? Mm -hmm. And the other thing that really irritates me, aside from the duplicity between governments and uh, vaccination companies and drug companies that produce this stuff, which is, of course, a wonderful money spinner for them. Every kid's got to get it is the demonization of measles, Brian. Measles does not kill healthy children. It doesn't kill well-nourished children. It kills children in developing countries who are malnourished. But as soon as you give them certain vitamins, they stop dying of measles. Mm. And that's the real key element here, is suddenly we've gone from um, having this as a, a standard childhood disease as it was when we were growing up to being this terrible killer, mm. and it's not. 
And the last thing we really have to ask the question on is this is a live vaccine. It's not surprising to me that in cases like many cases like what you've talked about, this is mutating and causing the very disease that it's supposed to prevent. Yeah. I mean, I've done some research separately from this article about uh, infectious diseases, as you do. And um, it's fascinating to read that really about 1850, there are 11 uh, infectious diseases, which included measles, which accounted for 40% of all deaths in Victorian England. And figures aren't really available in the States till 1900. But what were you seeing from that point, 1850 or, or 1900, was a steep decline in the rates of uh, the, 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 the lethality, if you like, of these infectious diseases. Mm-hmm. And people have done research into this. They found that you know, sanitation, better nutrition were, were by far and away the two single major factors that saw the decline in infectious diseases. And um, they reckoned that vaccinations were responsible for a mere 3.5% of that decline. And, you know, as you rightly say, in 1950, they said, well, the best antidote to measles is vitamin C. And subsequently, now they've added vitamin A to that. But so here we are. And so we have this false epidemic, which is probably the result of the vaccine itself, with, with, with things that can be done. And it, you know, as you rightly say, Lynn, in a, in a well-nourished person, measles is no longer a killer. And mm. it really is in time that someone coolly and rationally stood up and said this. And rather than this hysteria, that we're still all faced with. And who also stood up and said, let's do independent research into this vaccine, Mm. which has so many associations with really bad side effects, including autism, Mm. that don't go away, and terrible gastrointestinal problems that don't go away. Mm. And we need to look at this coolly and take it out of the hands of people who are attached in some way to the drug industry. Mm. And I, I fear this is a subject that also won't go away, but thanks, Lynn, for that. A couple of weeks ago, we did a story about CBD oils and CBD products generally being removed from shelves across the European Union and the 28 member states, maybe 27 soon. Anyway... Um, it caused a bit of a rush. People started trying to stockpile, I think, uh, their CBD products. Well, a bit of good news. Um, the EU has said it's prepared to reconsider that decision. The The decision, the initial decision to pull the uh, products was based upon a novel foods category designation that the EU has. And that encompasses uh, all sorts of products that have been available only since 1997. And they included CBD products in that. And I suppose from one point of view, you can see why. Um, They've been used uh, particularly for epilepsy in the last 10 years in particular. They've also been used very successfully as a pain reliever. But of course, someone, the, uh, there's a body went for the, U- the European Industrial Hemp Association has gone before the European Food Safety Association, lots of associations, saying that was well, hardly a novel food and they've traced um, cannabis or hemp, as you like, uh, back to 2020. 
1220 rather. And um, it probably goes back much before that as well, if they cared to look. But they've taken it back as far as 1220, so hardly makes it a novel food. And the EU, to their credit, are prepared to listen to this and say, well, you may well have a point. And so they are reconsidering it right now. So I think the pulling of the products is now on hold until everyone awaits the decision of the European Food Safety Association and what they have to say about it. Uh, but I mean, you know, it's quite interesting because, I mean, it has become such a popular product. I mean, it's been used by many, many thousands of people, mainly for pain relief, anxiety as well, and of course for epilepsy. It has been very effective in that. I mean, one of the sort of conspiracy theorists was that, of course, it's taken away from drug sales, which is a very good reason to pull the product. But yeah, maybe they're not going to put it. Any any thoughts, Lynn? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm really encouraged to hear this. Mm. Um, I am very worried about the EU's um, novel foods category, which could wipe off the shelves things like vitamin K mm. um, in, all through Europe and probably in the UK too, which is essential, certain Ks like MK7, essential for um, the body's use of vitamin D. So that's <clears throat> very scary. But it's also, you know, a case so much of the time of overkill. While we do want our regulatory agencies to be careful, they seem to be blithely okaying many drugs that are mm. actually dangerous for you and looking to prevent the sale of many, many natural substances with a great deal of clinical evidence of success without harm. Now, here's the difference between the Atlantic, you know, on one side of the Atlantic and the other. In America, virtually every Democratic candidate running is in favor of the wholesale legalization of marijuana. And mm. not only for, mar for uh, recreational use, but also medicinal use. Right. Whereas, you know, over here and in Europe, they're even worried about CBD oil, which mm. doesn't have the psychogenic effects mm. of regular marijuana. Yeah, the THC is removed, isn't yeah, it? So, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think this is a case of overcaution. I'm really glad to hear that mm. this is a product that is helping so many people and deserves to be out there. Well, we've got a new superfood in our family, I think. Wouldn't you say, Lynn? I think we do. Mushrooms. Mushrooms. Well, in the um, March issue, I think, we, we did uh, a piece about mushrooms mm -hmm. and how they could help prevent breast cancer mm -hmm. to the level of 64% reduction. Pretty impressive. Well, there's been more research uh, out about this great fungi since then. And now they're saying that it also can help um, mitigate against mild cognitive decline. So as we get older, memory lapses, lack of focus, lack of concentration. They feel that just two servings a week of mushrooms can help uh, mitigate against this and can, in fact, reduce the risk of you developing Cognitive decline by around fifty percent. Again, not a bad, not a bad result. And um, they've tried it with all sorts of different mushrooms. The, the variety doesn't seem to matter. Tried it with golden oyster, shiitake, and and white button, which are all 
very very much available on the shelves and um, found that they were very effective when they tried them on a group of 600 people who were aged 60 and older. It took it for about uh, six years and um, said that, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, the dose does seem to, they does seem to matter. The, it's round about three quarters of a cup of cooked mushrooms or 150 gram uh, eaten twice a week. Um, and the researchers said they were surprised and encouraged by the discovery. So who'd have thought it? So, Well, I'm not surprised, mm-hmm. Brian, because okay. as, you, as you say, in our March issue, we were looking at some of the most powerful foods that counter cancer. Mm. And mushrooms were one of the ones in the forefront. Mm. But the other one is an amazing surprise. Celery. Hmm. Good old celery. Huh. I mean, also just slashes hmm. your um, your chances of getting not only breast cancer, but a number of other cancers. And again, it's just a few servings a week. So now you see why a lot of people are extolling the incredible virtues of celery juice. Hmm. And then the third one, of course, we know a little more about, which is the cruciferous vegetables, you know, broccoli and cauliflower, cabbage. These are all, you know, well-known cancer fighters. Mm. So mm. the bottom line is essentially just get this in your daily diet. Right. When we launched What Doctors, pretty early on, around about 1990, 1991, when we were both children, we started um, raising the warning flag about HRT. I mean, very early on, we're getting a lot of... Uh, worrying reports about it and um you know here we are many years later and still the bad news seems to be coming out about hormone replacement therapy and the latest is that uh, women who take it for about 10 years or so are more likely to develop alzheimer's disease I mean, the risk is not enormous. It's at 19% and with other things factored in, it maybe isn't a great thing, but it's still enough, I think, to make people think twice about taking HRT. And it's quite a sizable study, so I think it is worth paying attention to. It's 84,000 women in Finland um, who were tested and they've been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And then the researchers uh, then said, okay, how many of them were taking HRT? And, um, and the, the, uh, the major risk was amongst those who had taken the estrogen progestogen version, where the risk was actually rose to 17%. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a massive concern. Um, and that uh, they say that... Um, they say, you know, we can't prove necessarily there's a direct cause, but there's a correlation. But they said they have found that compounds from HRT have been seen in the brain plaques of people which are common with Alzheimer's, the, the, the plaques of, of Alzheimer's. And they did seem to contain these compounds from HRT. So maybe there is rather more of a cause and effect going on here than the researchers say. I think, you know, the drug companies, governments, medical societies, doctors won't really admit what is obvious in the data now in every regard, which is HRT causes cancer. And now we know it causes other things too. 
Um, because a percentage of women feel better on HRT, they assume this is good and they want to alleviate symptoms without looking at the long-term effects. Many women, by the way, feel terrible on HRT. But, you know, I look at this giant study that was done years ago that should have put paid to this drug even then, which was the Women's Health Initiative, where hundreds of thousands of women um, taking HRT were analyzed. And they found, you know, and they, they had subgroups of people who had um, a familial background in breast cancer. Uh, first of all, they found that HRT caused an excess of breast cancer, so much so that they stopped the trial. Mm. They were that worried. But secondly, when researchers went back to see whether or not people who had family members who um, had breast cancer developed more cancer than anyone else, they found that wasn't the case. The only thing that made a difference, the only thing that made a difference was whether or not the person had taken HRT or not. Mm. And in that case, they had an, you know, they had a higher risk of developing breast cancer. Mm. So, you know, we've seen this data. It stopped a, the biggest trial ever done in this area. And the idea that it even should be discussed as a potential um, treatment for anyone, for me, is just flabbergasting. Mm. But some women do suffer, don't they, with the menopausal symptoms? What else could they do then? Oh, there's so many things that they can do. There are so many, first of all, there's so many foods with weak estrogenic um, activity that can alleviate sy symptoms as you go through the change. Um, there are um, products that are made from rhubarb and soy that have really helped. There are certain vitamins that help a great deal and other supplements. And by now mm. it's it's standard for many alternative practitioners to treat this very, very successfully. And again, you have to realize this is just the body's down regulation mm. of hormones. You know, we weren't meant to have the hormones of a 20 year old when we're 55. Mm. So um, women have to, they can take all kinds of alternative things to get through that process of downregulating, and then the body will take care of itself. Mm. Thanks, Lynn. The dog is a wonderful barometer for our health, apparently, because um, researchers have discovered that the chemicals in our home, from all the usual stuff that we have around the home, um, but in particular they're talking about the carpets, flooring, upholstery, uh, are making men infertile. And they discovered this because of the family dog. And um, they said, and then from that, they were able to work it out that the same was happening to their men owners. Um, this is uh, a real concern. I mean, we've seen sperm quality fall over the last 80 years or so. Pretty sure that it's almost entirely down to environmental factors, both inside and outside the home. But um, they're very concerned that it is the stuff in the home is a, is a, a chemical called DEHP. Don't ask me to say what that stands for, which is primarily responsible for this. Um, also, the industrial chemical PCB 153, although it was banned years ago, is still turning up in the food chain. 
So, I mean, how that's happening, I don't know, but we're still eating this stuff. And all of this is having an effect on us and, well, and, and the human race, in the, ultimately. Um, not entirely sure what we do about it. You may have some ideas, Lynn. But, um, yeah, I mean, researchers at Nottingham University were ones who uh, realised this by, by doing this um, analysis of, of, of the family dog and uh, came up with this. So what do, you, what do you reckon then? What can we do about it? Oh, there's loads we can do about it. And, yeah. you know, it's true that a study that was done in an industrial part of New Jersey mm. found that the indoor air quality of most homes was more polluted than the outdoor air quality. Right. So that has to do with a giant chemical soup of, of uh, that is produced with all of the products we use. It's in the furniture that we have now, MDF, outgases, chemicals, in the carpets we lay down, um, in the upholstery we put in, in fire retardants, mm. in the chemicals we use to clean the house, in the chemicals we use in toiletries. So all of this is a terrible, toxic brew mm. that we're breathing in all the time. But there are a load of things you can do. Number one, um, if you are refurnishing your house, uh, don't get wall-to-wall carpet. Mm. Get um, get have bare floors and use um, use carpeted you know carpets mm. rather than rugs. Mm. Um, so they're area carpets. Um, try to go for things that have not been treated as much as possible. You know, and there's a lot of companies that are now selling more organic type products. Um, companies like the Healthy House in the UK and many companies like that in the US sell products without chemicals in them. Yeah. Um, with food, it's simple. Just go organic. Go, yeah. go organic and you won't be subject to this kind of stuff can to we, the same degree. Can we do detoxing of any sort there as well? Um, yeah, there's loads of detoxing mm. ways that you can use. I mean, chlorella now is an amazing detoxer of plastics of all sorts and chemicals of all sorts. Not only does it get rid of heavy metals, but it gets rid of chemicals. And there's a number of really good products on the market. Yeah. Um, the other thing you can do is far infrared saunas. That's a really good detoxer. And they now make far infrared blankets that are almost like a little sleeping bag. You can just snuggle up and, you know, sweat a little and you're going to mm. start getting rid of the stuff through your pores. Okay. Lyme disease, I mean, it's a massive issue. I think it's seriously underreported and it's poorly treated by conventional medicine. Um, they reckon that if very high dose antibiotics can reverse the problem, can treat it fully if they catch it early enough. And that's the theory anyway. But researchers have discovered there's around 10% who've been so-called successfully treated still go on to suffer all sorts of chronic and life-destroying problems which are normally associated with the disease anyway. And these include fatigue, brain fog, you name it. And um, they didn't realise this until recently when Johns Hopkins medicine researchers had a look at some brain scans to discover all these problems of brain inflammation which cause these um, chronic uh, reactions and symptoms which are similar to Lyme disease itself, which sort of makes you wonder, well, what has caused this? Has it that 
Is it that the, the, the antibiotics haven't worked? Is this a reaction to the antibiotics themselves? And on which point researchers really don't know. Um, but it certainly puts pay to the idea that people who've had Lyme disease supposedly successfully treated, it's all in their mind because a lot of people have been you know, treated that way after the fact that doctors have said it must be all in your mind because, you know, you don't have the problem any longer. You've been successfully treated and you're still complaining about the symptoms. But the reality is they actually still do have the symptoms. Um, so I think this throws up all sorts of questions, Lynn, about uh, first about the use of antibiotics, how successful they really are, and also you know, um, we have done stuff in the past about the different therapeutic approaches for Lyme disease, which actually are more successful than antibiotics. So maybe Absolutely. Could... I mean, I think people have to understand that for long-term chronic Lyme, um, patients are given antibiotics for months. Now, doctors have never stopped to say, what is this doing mm. in continually decimating the important uh, colony of good guy bacteria in the gut and elsewhere, in the brain too, and elsewhere. You know, we have good guy bacteria all over our bodies, mm. and this is all getting wiped out with antibiotics continuously. So it really is a question of which is worse, the cure or the disease. But again, we're finding you don't have to have nuclear warfare, even against something as persistent as Lyme disease. Mm. I mean, we've covered and we're covering in our next issue, our June issue, as a whole story about the success in certain preliminary studies showing that a group of essential oils, simple essential oils like clove oil, are killing Lyme disease in a week in a week, and that's chronic Lyme disease. So many aromatherapists use use it. They don't claim a cure yet, but they're seeing really great results. And certainly in the laboratory, it's had tremendous results. Mm. So it's time to look elsewhere, Brian. Mm. I mean, and to also value and understand that it, the importance of maintaining the gut bacteria, it's the key to health mm -hmm. and antibiotics really has to be kept to life and death uh, situations, yeah, basically. Yeah. And yet again, it underlines what we say almost every week is that there are natural non-drug remedies out there which are very effective and safe. Absolutely. Mm. Pretty much everything has a natural cure for it. Mm. Well, look, I think we've come to the end of this week's podcast, vlogcast. Thank you both all for watching, listening. Lynn's holding up the latest issue, now available in stores. Um, I'm Brian Hubbard. Thank you very much for being with us, and we'll see you again soon. I'm Lynn McTaggart. Thanks for watching and listening. Mm -hmm.